When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Rachel Hampton, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it, Slate's podcast about internet culture. And today, as the great philosopher Jason Derulo once said, I'm writing solo. Candace is continuing her investigation to the Bath and Body Works lobby. Candace, we salute you in your steadfast efforts. Braver than the troops. But never fear, dear listeners, you do not have to listen to me monologue for 45 minutes straight just because Candace is gone. Later in the show, we'll be bringing on ICYMI faves and Slate staff writers Nadira Goff and Atish Pawa. We don't actually need an excuse to have them both on because this is my show. But we do actually have a reason for this particular meeting of the minds, which is that both Nadira and Natish wrote about a figure who has recently been the subject of a whole lot of discussion. And that figure is Hassan Minaj. For those of y'all who are blessed enough to have missed out on the past month of discourse, Hassan Minaj has been at the center of a conversation around ethics and truth and comedy that was launched by a September 15th New Yorker article titled Hassan Minaj's Emotional Truths. In this article written by New Yorker staff writer Claire Malone, we are basically taken through a series of stories that Minaj has told over the past five years in his stand-up specials and on the Patriot Act that turn out either to be completely fabricated or where details were elided in the service of what Minaj calls the, quote, emotional truth. About a month later, on October 26th, Minaj responded with a 21-minute video titled My Response to the New Yorker article that provides additional context for some of the fabrications that the New Yorker alleges that he made. Claire Malone then posted a statement to Twitter the same day that basically says, we stand by our story. In short, it looks like a bit of a mess. Now, I want to start off by saying that none of us expect comedians to be in the business of telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I doubt anyone is ever going to be out there fact-checking David Sedaris for accuracy. But both the New Yorker article and Minaj's response raise some pretty important questions about the genre of infotainment that Minaj and predecessors like Jon Stewart and Trevor Noah traffic in. Questions like, where is the line between comedic license and deception? And does the location of that line change when the subject is the lived experiences of a marginalized community? Today, we are going to talk through those questions, 
But if you haven't had time to read the article or watch the video yet, don't worry. We're going to take you through the most hotly contested parts of both with Nadira and Natish after a short break. Just a heads up, Natish called in live from outside the Sam Bigman free trial because that boy never stops working. So there might be some background street noise on his side. Hey y'all, if you love our podcast, then please consider subscribing to Slate Plus. When you subscribe to Slate Plus, you get no ads on any Slate podcast, including this one. You will also be supporting the show. ICYMI would not be possible without the support of Slate Plus subscribers. You will also get bonus segments or episodes on shows like Slow Burn, Hang Up and Listen, Mom and Dad Are Fighting, and Dear Prudence. You might even hear me on some Dear Prudence Plus segments. Who knows? You'll find out if you subscribe. You'll also get unlimited reading on the Slate website, which means you get access to every single article and advice column on Slate without ever hitting the paywall. Just visit slate.com slash ICYMI plus to sign up. That is slate.com slash ICYMI plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well... It was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. And we're back with Slate staff writers and cultural luminaries, Nadira Goff and Natish Pawa. We're here today to talk about, you guessed it, Hassan Minaj. Both Nadir and Natish wrote great pieces for Slate about the New Yorker article, Hassan Minaj's Emotional Truths, and Minaj's subsequent 20-minute video that attempts to debunk some of the claims made by the New Yorker. We will get into how effective that debunking is. But first, hi, y'all. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us. Always, always happy to be on the show. Uh, This feels like we're just hanging out. Okay, well, my first question is, before all of this happened, how did y'all feel about Hassan Minaj? Because I'm going to be 100% honest, almost everything I've learned about him has been against my will. I don't actually think (laughs) I've ever intentionally watched anything of Minaj's until his response to the New Yorker article. But I'm not a stand-up girly and I'm not a Daily Show girly. So that makes sense. I wasn't necessarily a stand-up girly. I'm only sort of moderately familiar with stand-up comedians um, in that sort of traditional form of comedy. And I wasn't necessarily a Daily Show girly either. But I do think Hassan popped up onto the scene in a moment where I did start to have a greater appetite for political-based comedy because I was not necessarily 
directly into comedy and I wasn't directly into news. So this whole idea of like infotainment, which he didn't create, by the way, you know, like I'm not saying that, but the whole idea of infotainment at the time, he just sort of kind of rose to popularity at a time where I was interested in seeking out the exact type of thing that he was doing. And I particularly really, really loved the show Patriot Act. And I do think the show Patriot Act is still good in terms of the product that it created. And because I love Patriot Act so much, I bought a ticket to see Husson's second special, The King's Jester, live. I saw it in New York. I had a great time. I thought it was really funny. I went with one of my best friends and we both thought it was great. And so I I do think that this New Yorker article came out at a time where I was really excited to see what he did next. And then it became a much more interesting story than I thought it would. But yeah, so that's where I was when, you know, this sort of whole thing went down. So I did watch a a decent bit of Daily Show back in the day in the Jon Stewart era. But like after Stewart left the Daily Show, I didn't really care for Trevor Noah's hosting, gotta be honest. So I kind of fell off of that. And the whole like era of resistance comedy too, as it were, that popped up in like 2017, 2018, also not really my thing. Did not like um, Hassan's uh, viral... um, White House Correspondents Dinner clip or his first special even. But like Nadira, I did really love and appreciate Patriot Act. I thought of like all the little ramshackled chalk shows that got popped up during that time. Like it was definitely among the stronger ones. And it covered a really welcome spate of topics that I rarely found covered anywhere else. I mean, I remember covering, you know, issues with Moby uh, at the time for Slate and watching the Patriot Act episode around it and finding it just like really valuable to have that as a resource too. So we're going to kind of break down the story sequentially because honestly, if you don't have to, why waste your one wild and precious life reading a 5,000 word New Yorker article and a 20 minute follow up video about that article? First, we have the article. On September 15th, The New Yorker published Claire Malone's article on Hassan Minaj. At first glance, it looks like a profile of a prospective candidate for the Daily Show hosting gig that's been open since Trevor Noah left last year. But within a few paragraphs, it becomes abundantly clear that something is just a little bit fishy here. And if you're to believe The New Yorker, the thing that's fishy is Minaj. Malone takes us through a few different incidents where it seems as if in the interest of, quote, emotional truth, Minaj either allied specific details or outright fabricates story. And it's really easy to come away from this article with the impression that Hassan Minaj basically lies for profit. So before we dive into the specifics of these alleged fabrications, I wanted to ask what stuck out most to y'all about this article? Because I feel like both of y'all read it right when it came out, as most people at Slate did, because we're gossipy bitches. (laughs) Okay, I can start by saying that there are two pieces of this New Yorker article that I definitely sort of honed in on. And that weekend that that article came out, it was all anyone I knew would talk about, even if it was just snide comments, like offhand comments about fabrications or or quote unquote lies, you know, it was all anyone was sort of referencing. And so I think specifically the two parts that jumped out 
at me were the section of the article that talks about the gender-based discrimination that some of the employees, some of the fact checkers specifically, of Patriot Act had alleged had happened in terms of it being on the hands of Hassan and the other sort of managers of that show. So they had alleged that they had experienced some gender-based discrimination that they had actually apparently filed a suit for. And per the New Yorker article, it says that that suit was settled out of court. So that was one thing that apparently, you know, there was a statement made about it at the time and all of this stuff, but I had entirely missed that that news. And so I was super interested to read that. And then I think of the sort of alleged fabrications, the one that really stuck out to me and the only one that I, to be completely honest, even cared about was the alleged fabrication that Hassan had lied about hospitalizing his daughter for an anthrax scare. And the rest just seemed to me to be like, okay, you know, there is a question here in this article about what is stand-up comedy and what is truth in comedy. But those two things specifically I felt really squicky about. And I think those two things specifically play out in a very interesting way in the subsequent response video. Yeah, I remember going into the article with like a little bit of skepticism for a few reasons. One, I thought, you know, okay, classic. Um, They are going after now this very prominent minority uh, cultural figure. And then two... I was like, okay, but if it's like an exaggeration thing, I mean, yeah, uh, I'm aware that it is a long time practice. So I walked in with those in mind, but I also was interested to see if they would, uh, the piece would address the allegations of workplace uh, misconduct at Patriot Act that had emerged, you know, right after the show had been canceled. So they dove in and yeah a lot of stuff actually surprisingly made me raise my eyebrows quite a bit including as nadira mentioned the anthrax story um i also was really really miffed by the uh jamal khashoggi side there specifically making up the thing about jared kushner you know sitting in a seat that had been reserved Poor Khashoggi, like... (laughs) One sentence of this article that I reread four times. Because I think it's one thing to exaggerate things that you have experienced or you have done, but to Mm -hmm. completely lie and say another actual prominent figure human has done something that they legitimately did not do is a little bonkers. It's just one sentence of the article, but it's a little bonkers. It really is. And I mean... It really gets to me, that that in particular really gets to me for two reasons. I mean, one, there's enough you could say about Jared Kushner's, let's say, uh, lack of respect for the Middle East um, without making up a story like that about him. And two, the thing with Hassan that he really tried to do in Patriot Act as well is like, oh yeah, you know, I made this episode about Mohammed bin Salman, who even at the time, was still being excused by a lot of people. And, you know, this was something that was getting me in trouble, getting the episode banned in Saudi Arabia and so on. And with uh, what happened with Khashoggi, which um, I think, unfortunately, you know, has kind of gone by the wayside these days, is like, you know, for someone like Hassan to be really speaking up about it, you know, I thought was 
really powerful. Right. And that's because Mohammed bin Salman is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And so when it turns out that he just like made up that story about Jared Kushner as well, like I'm just like, okay, dude, now it's not just that you're making up stories, but it's about making up stories to make yourself you know, into more of this hero image that you are clearly trying to craft here. And that is literally the whole point of the article, right? That's the question that it's asking, or that's sort of the way that he defends himself as a sort of preface maybe to talk about the video. That's how you can boil down his whole defense, is that he put emphasis or enhanced some of these stories or actually, you know, created some things that did not happen in order to strengthen an emotional point or an emotional truth, quote unquote, that he is trying to impart upon his audience. Like, that's literally it. Like, you know, there's there's emails and text messages and whatever that he presents that are redacted that he maybe didn't get permission and you know I'm we're taking on good faith are actually from the people he says they are from but like that is the point that's the sort of boiled down point of the 21 minute video mm-hmm, right and kind of speaking of enhancing the story uh could we go back for a second and explain a bit more about the incident y'all are referring to the one that's mentioned in the New Yorker piece with Jamal Khashoggi and Jared Kushner they describe this uh, very prominent event that Hassan had been at, along with lots of other like big names and celebrities, including one uh, Jared Kushner. So basically, he was telling the story about how he confronted Kushner about his approach to the Middle East, which uh, does appear to have been true. But what he made up was that there was apparently a chair set aside at the event and left empty to represent Khashoggi, who, as we know, was a Washington Post journalist um, who was uh, murdered by Saudi goons in an embassy, and who, like, it is almost certainly determined that Mohammed bin Salman, like, helped order his literal dismemberment because um, Khashoggi had been a prominent voice very opposed to the Saudi regime, despite bin Salman's uh, efforts to make it seem like he was ushering Saudi Arabia into the new century. The Kushner sitting in Khashoggi's seats thing is like such a classic thing you'd expect from a, a Trump family member, right? The, the disregard for journalists, the disregard for you know a prominent Middle Eastern American, the uh, disregard for just general norms of politeness but it turns out that that story was not in fact true at all they just completely made this up about kushner and like why are you putting me in a place where i have to defend (laughs) uh, jared kushner are you serious (laughs) like that alone for me is like i'm gonna find it hard to forgive hassan for that if i ever do (laughs) That is so fair. And I actually wanted to read a bit from the piece that you wrote for Slate in that kind of period between the New Yorker piece and the video response from Minaj. So you wrote, quote, but as opposed to stand-up greats like Richard Pryor, who supplemented their commentary with clearly exaggerated alter egos, Minaj never even hinted that he was doing a character or giving voice to stories he'd heard from others. 
or gesturing toward the broader landscape of Muslim Americans, Minaj took what real everyday brown folks were going through and led those people to believe that he'd also been there, earning his fame and plaudits from that very trust, as well as the trust that engendered among those who wished to understand brown Americans. Could you say a little bit more about that? I think it's such an important point when we kind of talk about truth and comedy, which is allegedly what this piece is about, that there is a kind of framework for exaggerating that people who watch comedy are familiar with. And it seems like you're saying Minaj didn't really seem to suggest he was working within that framework. Yeah, I'd written this uh, reflection for Slate about um, reacting to this news and the discourse around it. Azam was a very famous voice and a very famous uh, minority voice in uh, American entertainment. So what I was trying to get through with that specific uh, bit there was a couple things. One, the thing is, Minaj doesn't just come from like the world of comedy, stand-up comedy, whatever, but he comes from the Daily Show era of comedy, and more specifically, the Daily Show era of comedy that really emerged from the George W. Bush years, which was when a lot of people turned to a show hosted by a comedian like The Daily Show or related programs that were a little more on the snarky side like The Colbert Report because at the time a lot of mainstream media, as we know, was uh, kind of enthralled to the Bush administration's uh, war on terror and to the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan and also like not really like playing up the concerns of Muslim Americans and brown Americans writ large. There was definitely something refreshing from Jon Stewart about like, yes, they were still being funny. They were still making jokes, but they really were like actually getting to the core of what was going on here. Like here was a crooked administration doing extremely awful stuff that was having all sorts of downstream effects that were not being sufficiently covered by our supposed uh, free press. And so the comedy is true thing. There are all sorts of like people who've like done a version of it over the years. But I think the Daily Show thing really helped like make that a standard, if you will. A lot of people will say in response to this that like, oh, but you're still talking about stand up as opposed to his show. Like, in his stand-up, it's uh, okay to embellish. What I am trying to get to with what I was writing is that the reason Hassan was able to get to that place and the reason his stand-up had the reach that it had is because people saw a truth in it. And more to the fact, Hassan did nothing to discourage that perception. As Malone points out in the piece, he gave interviews in which he repeated some of the very anecdotes that he would say in these uh, stand-up specials. And, you know, I mentioned the Richard Pryor example. Richard Pryor obviously embellished and, like, kind of exaggerated personal stories all the time. But he never, like, went around acting as though those stories were, like, the thing that defined him in his existence. He was telling funny stories for a crowd that like to laugh at slightly edgier things. Hassan's stories, they were not delivered as though he were giving them at a stand-up show. He was delivering them as though he was just like sitting down and telling you a story about something awful that happened to him. And of course people bought into that. 
That's a really good point, and I think a really kind of good entry point into the actual allegations. So, like I said, this piece is at least 5,000 words, and there's a lot in there, but three specific stories end up becoming the focal point of the discourse. And that's partially because in Hassan Minaj's 20-minute response video that comes out almost a month after the original article Minaj makes these three stories a focal point of his argument that the New Yorker was basically out to paint him as a psycho. The things he doesn't mention in this video are just as interesting as the things he does, but we will get into that later. Nadira, you broke this video down very expertly, so I'm going to be leaning on you for help explaining these stories. First, there's a story that I think most people are focusing on. And I think most people are focusing on it because Minaj very savvily places his story first in his video, despite the fact that it's the last story to come up in the article. First, I want to talk about how and why I was rejected from prom. Now, let me first say this. I am 38 years old with a wife and two kids. I do not give a shit about prom. But it's a big story from my first stand-up special. And the New Yorker implied that I made it all up and that my race wasn't a factor in my rejection. But it was, and I have the evidence to prove it. So, in Homecoming King, I told a story about how I was supposed to go to prom with a white girl named Bethany Reed. Her real name is not Bethany. I changed it to protect her anonymity. I say that I show up at Bethany's house on prom night, but at the doorstep, her mom tells me they don't want her to go to prom with me because they'll be taking a lot of pictures, and they don't want their family back home to see her with a brown boy. Bethany's mom did really say that. It was just a few days before prom. And I created the doorstep scene to drop the audience into the feeling of that moment, which I told the reporter. Is the doorstep moment true? Like, no, did that happen? No, no, no. It happened before. Like, but the emotional truth remains the same. Her mom going, hey, sweetie, we like, we take photos and we don't want people to see. We have family back home. Did did she sort of give that as the reason of like, my parents aren't comfortable with yes. going? Yeah. Yes. You know, and it yeah. was, it just destroyed yeah. me. Yeah. Sure. That's understandable. The reporter said it's understandable, but none of what I explicitly said makes it in the article. Okay. Nadira, is that true? Does none of that make it into the article? N- no. <laughs> 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 okay. So basically the article does not necessarily take issue with the assertion that Hassan was denied a prom experience or that his prom date canceled on him because of a racist incident. That is the story that he tells in the special. That is the story that is reiterated in the piece. What the piece then goes on to debunk is the timing of it. Hassan makes up the doorstep scene, as he calls it. But the piece says it doesn't actually happen on the doorstep the day of the dance. He's rejected a few days before. It doesn't say that he wasn't rejected for a racist reason. It it never says that it wasn't because of a racist reason. It just says it wasn't on the day of prom. It wasn't on the doorstep. Mm -hmm. But Hassan takes specific umbrage with that, I guess. And also there's a specific line in the piece that says that the two parties had long held different understandings, quote unquote, different understandings of, you know, of what happened or the uh, the effect of that night. And 
that I think is what Hassan is alleging is leaving is the sentence that leaves the racist part most up for debate. Right. Mm. But I don't necessarily think that that was true in in my eyes, though. I can see how someone could maybe misread it as saying or thinking or believing that he was rejected for a different reason. But again, the only thing the piece says is that he was rejected days earlier. It says nothing about why he was rejected, and if the reason that he gave is a fabrication, right? And so in the video, Hassan makes this whole thing where he says, the New Yorker is making it seem like I lied about being, you know, rejected at prom for a racist reason. That's not true. The article makes it seem like you lied about when you were rejected for prom, which is true. You lied about that. You said you did. So, you know, that is sort of the, the main thing. When we talk about this video, I want people to think about three things. I want them to think about permission. I want them to think about omission. And I want them to think about suspicion. And so with this first section, I really want people to think about permission. So Hassan makes this video and he includes all of these redacted uh, screenshots of emails and text messages and stuff that we are supposed to believe that allegedly are from this quote unquote Bethany, this almost prom date. And we don't know if Bethany gave the, gave the permission for those to be shown. You know, we don't know if, if that's the case, but they come up in talking about a few other sort of minor details that end up being actually really important that the article alleges. So it's not just about the timing and the racist incident of it all. There's also the later points where the special actually comes out. And the article who interviewed the Bethany in question says that Bethany felt two things, specifically that the off-Broadway enactment of the special didn't properly you know, protect her identity. And it used a real photo of her and her husband that, you know, their faces were only blurred out. In the video, Hassan says that the Netflix special was a photo of actors. The piece talks about an off-Broadway reenactment, right? An off-Broadway production. And so that's a really one, two-word distinction that's really, really important, right? Mm -hmm. So there's also that. He sort of proves that by showing this email that's from the Bethany in question that says, you know, oh, thank you so much for protecting me and my family and for telling me about these tweets that I should take down because they might identify me, right? That's one instance. And this was years ago. It could be that now she feels differently about what happened. And that is also true of another allegation in sort of this first thing about the prom story, which is that there is an allegation in the piece that the quote unquote Bethany says that she was invited by Hassan to see the show Mm -hmm. with her family or her husband, I believe. And at first she took it as a good faith, you know, invitation. And then when she got there and she saw the special, she felt humiliated and she thought that it was a sort of point to intentionally humiliate her and her family for being racist. And Hassan basically shows these emails and says, you know, they were always pleasant. And he specifically shows an email that says that she invited herself, right? That she was already coming to the show and he didn't specifically invite her. But the way that it's redacted, I mean, it could very well be that he did invite her and she was like, oh, hey, actually, I'm already coming, right? Like, we don't know. We don't know that that isn't what happened, that he did invite her first, but she already happened to have a ticket, right? And so I want people to be very sort of uh, eagle-eyed when they are thinking about this evidence, when they are watching this video and when they're listening to this video. And I found it very very telling that Hassan does not in his video at all mention the fact that the things Bethany herself is attributed as saying 
the fact is the journalist does seem to have spoken to Bethany and there has been no serious contestation from either Hassan or Bethany or a close source that anything Bethany said in there should be refuted. Yeah, I really kind of want to hone in on what you both are saying. Also because I think journalism as a practice isn't necessarily super understood. I don't think media literacy is that high, especially not cultural journalism. I think, importantly, everything that y'all are saying kind of comes down to the fact that in the New Yorker piece, everything that we know about the prom story we know about because Clara Malone spoke to Bethany. And so in the fact-checking process, that means that fact-checkers would go to Bethany to confirm that she said this. And so when Hassan says this isn't true, the New Yorker isn't fact-checking, he can say that and people will believe it because people are suspicious of media, which is their right. But as someone who's seen how pieces like this get written, who understands that the New Yorker is highly unlikely to publish anything that Bethany hadn't confirmed herself, what it feels to me like he's implying is that Bethany is lying. Yes, but he knows that he, can't, he can't say, say that, Bethany right? is lying. Exactly. exactly. And so I think that's a really kind of important fact. The the note that you made about the off-Broadway versus Netflix production is also something that stuck out to me. It really felt like a sleight of hand that I found quite distasteful. Yeah. But that's all the time we have for prom. After a short break, we're going to walk y'all through the next two claims in the New Yorker piece that Minaj takes issue with. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. And we're back. So we're going to go on to the next claim. Both of the next claims feel much more clear cut to me, and I'm interested to see how y'all feel. So first we have this Brother Eric story, and here's what Hassan has to say about that. Now, in my second special, The King's Jester, I tell a story about how I met and was harassed by an FBI informant named Brother Eric. I talk about how he tried to entrap me at a gym, and when I made fun of him, he slammed me against the hood of a cop car. The truth is, I did have altercations with undercover law enforcement growing up, and that experience formed the basis of this story. But it didn't go down exactly like this. So I understand why people are upset. 
people face real danger at the hands of the police and false stories can undermine real stories. And I am sorry I added to that problem. My intention wasn't to take away from these stories. It was to spotlight them through my special. That's why I used this story to talk about Hamid Hayat. Hamid and I were part of the same NorCal Muslim community. When he got entrapped, it rocked our community and he spent 14 years in prison. We were the same age, same background, and like him, I also had run-ins with undercover agents. I was even physically harassed by them while playing basketball. So this feels, like I said, pretty clear-cut to me in that it's an obvious fabrication that Minaj both admits to and apologizes for. I think the apology is important because an apology is an admission of wrongdoing. But I don't actually know if this is that far afield of the kind of exaggerations that you might expect to hear from a comedian in a stand-up special, because this is from the King's Chester. This isn't from the Patriot Act. And so I wanted to know what y'all think about that. I I just want to read from the piece regarding a point about the brother Eric story and the basketball thing. The brother Eric story, Minaj said, it was based on a hard foul he received during a game of pickup basketball on youth. Minaj and other teenage Muslims played pickup games with middle-aged men whom the boys suspected were officers. One made a show of pushing Minaj to the ground. I fully believe that he and others were suspicious there were these officers. We know for a fact that a lot of Muslim communities across the country were infiltrated by FBI informants. That being said, he does not say that one, this brother Eric person, was the one who pushed him to the ground here. And two, he does not actually, you know, say that anyone here was an officer who did push him to the ground. Now, I'm not saying that the suspicion and fear are not valid, because they totally are. But when you are talking about this story and trying to rebut how it's presented in this piece, I I, I have questions. Yeah, 100%. Okay, so I want to be really clear in saying that, to me, there are very few, but there are a few moments in the piece where I concede that things could have been made clearer. Yes, with the prom story, the article says it, you know, happened at a different time. Could it also have restated that, you know, the racist allegations or the reason why was still there? Yeah, sure, it could have. And there's also a few moments sort of throughout the piece or or later on in the piece. But most of the rest of the piece outside of the prom story is very, as you said, Rachel, very clear cut. And this FBI informant, you know, allegation in terms of lying is in terms of the permission of mission suspicion thing, very much a, a good example of, of casting suspicion, right? So Hassan basically repeats what the New Yorker article, what Claire Malone says, right? He acknowledges that all the things that she said were true, that this brother Eric figure was not the, basically that it just had never actually happened, but that the story was based on some altercations that he had with what he believed to be undercover law enforcement in his youth, right? And as Tish read, Malone explains this. She even gives more details about the pickup basketball stuff than Hassan does in his own video. But instead of just leaving it there, Hassan then throws suspicion 
on Claire Malone and on The New Yorker by posing the question of whether Claire Malone cared more about the FBI informant than she does about innocent Muslims that were targeted, you know, post 9-11 and in the very insidious and very harmful ways that their communities were infiltrated and that they were targeted. But it makes entire sense to me that a journalist would want to at least ask Hassan about why he didn't tell or try and do quote-unquote journalist due diligence in giving a heads up to someone that he was creating a story about. Because part of the point of the piece is that he's not a journalist, right? And so that is a way that you can get to that conclusion or, or paint that picture that, you know, he knows he is not a journalist and what he's doing is he's making a separation between his infotainment and his stand-up. Whatever. You can get to that point by asking the question, but you have to ask the question. Like, asking the question as a journalist can't always be a sort of leading oppressive thing. Like, she kind of has to ask you why you did and didn't do certain things. That's kind of how it's gonna work. And instead of giving grace to just the idea of a journalist being able to ask questions and then sort of talking about the differences in those things. Instead, he just basically says, well, it seems like you're more interested in, you know, in this FBI informant and and protecting him than he was in protecting our... And it's just like, maybe we don't need to do this. Like, I think that we understand why you created this story, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that... He believes that the article paints him in such a poor light that he then has to show alleged text from Hamid Hayat saying, oh, hey, I loved that you talked about my story and I specifically loved the way that you talked about my story and I think it's all good, which is totally fine. But I don't think the article was arguing that it was bad for him to fabricate this story or to sort of bring up Hamid Hayat's story in that way. I think it was just saying that it is something that he did, right? I don't think that the article was making it a negative or positive thing. And so, again, casting suspicion on Claire Malone and The New Yorker for a sort of interpretation or reading instead of what's actually there. And now on to the last and final story that Minaj speaks about. The last story I want to talk about is the anthrax care. My last special, I talk about how I received a letter in the mail, and when I opened the letter, white powder fell on my daughter, and we had to take her to the hospital only to find out it was not real anthrax. This, as you know, is not how it went down. And let me just say, I am sorry for embellishing the story, or if anyone was worrying about me and my family, I apologize. But let me make something clear. A letter with white powder was sent to my apartment in February of 2019. I opened it in the kitchen, powder fell on the table, and my daughter was just a few feet away. After 10 seconds of freaking out, I realized it was not anthrax and that someone was fucking with me. He goes on to talk about the threats that he received after an episode of Patriot Act was pulled for being critical of Muhammad bin Salman. Now you might be wondering, this is all terrifying, so why embellish? Why even say you took your daughter to the hospital the night of the anthrax care? Bina and I, we got into a huge argument and she kept asking, Hassan, what if this powder fell on our daughter? So I created the hospital scene to put the audience in that same shock and fear that me and Bina felt playing out that night. Then I added the investigator character because women in my life were telling me that Bina was coming off super naggy in old versions of the story. So I gave some of Bina's lines 
to other characters so that her perspective was represented in a way that didn't reflect poorly on her. Again, I am sorry if I crossed a line here, but I told this story this way to put the audience on the roller coaster ride that we were both experiencing at that time. And again, this feels quite clear cut to me in the same way that the Brother Eric story does. When you bring in your daughter like that, that really, really does not sit well with me. Yeah, I think in terms of the piece, perhaps the only thing the piece could have added is that when the real letter, which did have white powder in it, but it wasn't anthrax, was opened, that Hassan's daughter was only a few feet away. I don't know. Maybe Hassan didn't mention that in his interviews. There's no way for us to know. I don't think he includes that audio in his video. But I do think, again, it's sort of really clear cut that he did lie about his daughter being hospitalized. And I think posing the question, he sort of like self-indicts himself Mm. in saying that, yeah, I think everything that has happened to him, getting rejected from prom for racist reasons, potentially having run-ins with undercover cops on a basketball court, and receiving a letter that you thought had anthrax in it, and death threats on top of that, which the article does mention. It mentions all of those things. I do think that those are genuinely terrifying enough. I don't think that they necessarily needed to be enhanced in order for it to come off. Now, maybe it just doesn't read as well or, you know, sound as well in a storytelling format. But I do genuinely think that those things are devastating and terrifying, right? And I and I think that that would have come across. And so I think in terms of this video, what we have overall is that we have a, mostly a reframing of a framing of the same mm. exact evidence, right? And I think specifically with the last sentence, it's sort of the most clear in Hudson's response video, he says that he takes umbrage with the last sentence because it cuts off half of the context of what he actually said in the interview. But he, in putting that sentence in the video, actually cut off the first half of the sentence, which was the context that he was saying was missing, right? And so we have these sort of really specific liberties that he's taking with this text in sort of trying to reframe it. And I think it's all mostly an effort to make himself look better when he felt that he was portrayed poorly. It is also somewhat partially a smokescreen to not have to talk about the gender discrimination uh, suit mm -hmm. and some of the other things that are present in the article. And it's also just really good proof of of charisma and a well-placed, well-made video versus writing and journalism, right? If you're someone who's charismatic and you've made an entire career off of making me like you and believe you, when you say something or you defend yourself, I'm going to react to it much more emotionally and much more kindly than I would just reading words on a piece of paper. And indeed, when I watched the video, I was like, oh my gosh, this New Yorker article, how could it lie about so many things? And then I went back and reread it and was like, actually, that's not what happened at all. It's in fact, you know, not nearly that bad or overblown. And yeah, I think it's an important lesson for us to sort of close read and close listen to the two pieces and really understand the way that celebrities in Hollywood can sometimes recontextualize something, particularly by journalists, to make it seem like it was different than what it actually is. And I'm not saying that the piece doesn't have any moments of confusion because you can misunderstand or misread some of it. But there's such, such, such small moments in the piece compared to what Hassan would, you know, maybe want you to think given his video. And so I think that it's it ultimately is just a, a really great lesson in like, 
PR, right? <laughs> instead mm-hmm. of instead of actually a great lesson in redemption or getting one over on on a journalist or journalism. I mean, I think y'all have really kind of hit the themes and kind of questions that I feel like I've wrestled with over the past month that this has been going on. Hassan basically ends the video by saying that he sees a divide between his work as a storytelling comedian and as a political comedian. And he wonders why if the New Yorker is interested in truth and comedy, why they only fact-checked his comedy. In political comedy, facts come first. In comedic storytelling, emotions come first. That is what I said, and that is what I meant. Going forward, will I be more thoughtful about sticking to the facts in my storytelling? Absolutely. I have no problem with honest, good-faith critique because I am always trying to improve as a performer and as a person. I don't really feel like is a very, like, worthy rebuttal, but it does make me feel like, ultimately, The New Yorker doesn't really come out quite scot-free in this. I think that the framing of the piece really does it a disservice in framing this almost as a profile of a political figure, which has its own newsworthiness like baked into the piece versus the profile of a comedian. I kind of feel like it would have been better served by a writer of color who would have expanded this piece beyond Minaj and put it into a broader context of why are people of color almost encouraged to have the most traumatic experience possible to gain legitimacy. But overall, I've come away thinking everything I've learned about Hassan Minaj has been against my will. Yeah, I think that's all extremely fair to say. Yeah, 100%. I think that, you know, the piece could have had another paragraph at least about other comedians who have embellished or even just a sentence being like, hey, I understand that comedians do this, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like I I do think that that definitely had its place. And I 100% agree with everything that you said in terms of the framing. But I do wish that people kind of paid more attention to also like the specific words that are there instead of just the general feeling of it. I wish that people sort of gave more energy and time to both of those things because it's all sort of one big jumbled mess, right? And I and I think that that plays a big part into it as well. Mm. And also to be clear, I don't think that like Hassan Minaj should be like marginalized from free society forever and never given a platform again. That's not my takeaway from any of this. I do wish his own response had just a little more self-reflection. I mean, that kind of perfectly dovetails into my last question, which is how much of Hassan's response do you think is actually about the article itself? And how much of it do you think is about the response that he was seeing online? I'm just going to say, as someone whose own piece was screenshotted and included in the video, along with the montage of a lot of other headlines, I would say definitely majority about the reaction to the piece. And I also want to say that that is understandable, considering that one of the biggest gigs of his potential career was on the line, right? So, you know, I get it, but at the same time, makes you feel a little squeaky. Thank you again to Natish Pawa and Adair Goff for joining me for this discussion. I know we made light of the length of both the piece and Minaj's follow-up video, but if you're interested in this, I do actually encourage all of you to go read the article and watch the video for yourself. As another great philosopher 
Gina Rodriguez once said, Mama, let's research. All right, that is the show. We'll be back in your feed on Wednesday, so please subscribe. It's the best way to never miss an episode, to never miss an appearance by Nadira and Natish. They're gonna be back. Please leave a rating and review on Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMindPod. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, you can also always drop us a note at ICYMindSleep.com. ICYMI is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks, Candice Slim, and me, Rachel Hampton. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's vice president of audio. See you online, or not. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.